Karl Rove is one of the most astute observers of the American political scene today. His weekly column for the Wall Street Journal is a must-read, and of course he started his career getting George W. Bush elected first governor of Texas and then president of the United States. Carl, history has played an important part in your life. Who taught you history? Well, I'd have to say first my father, who gave me the first book I can ever remember reading called Great, uh, Great Moments in History. I still have it. And uh, it's a rather childish book. Each page has a crude drawing of the event in question, takes up about two thirds of the page. And then the bottom third is a description of the event. And uh, I can remember reading it and just being enchanted by uh, everything. And uh, so I, th I think it was my father first. He, he later gave me an almanac of world history. I still got that too. And then when I was uh, eight years old and the centennial of the Civil War was coming up, he gave me the American Heritage book on the Civil War, which featured these fantastic maps, which were three-dimensional maps in which they had the little, they had drawings of the little uh, soldiers and the artillery and the cavalry charging. And I, st I still have that one too, but I, I, I've always had an interest as a result in history. And I'd say the second person who taught me history was a, a high school teacher uh, named Eldon Tolman who was very formal, uh, never called you by your first name, very demanding, very tough. And as a result, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed his classes. And in your history book about the McKinley uh, era, you very much, as the subtitle, um, state that it has, uh, it has lessons to teach us even today, even though uh, 1896 is now a long, long way off. Uh, tell us what those are. Well, first of all, 1896 is studied by political scientists as one of the five great realigning elections in American history. Uh, these are elections that political scientists believe uh, basically altered the course of politics. America was politically one way before the election, and then for a significant period of time after the election, something different. First such election is 1800, the emergence of the Democratic Republicans under Thomas Jefferson, uh, 1828, the Jacksonians and the creation of the modern Democratic Party, uh, 19, uh, 1860, the emergence of the Republicans with Abraham Lincoln, 1896, with the creation of a durable Republican majority that brought to an end the chaos of the Gilded Age politics of America, and then 1932, and the creation of the, of the, of, of the New Deal coalition. And, and what's interesting to me is that America in uh, 1896 sort of looks like America today. Our politics back then was bitter, divisive, angry. Um, both parties had their difficulties. The Democratic Party was splintering between uh, the historically uh, economically conservative gold Democrats and a populist movement based around uh, the uh, attempt to uh, uh, achieve uh, bimetallism or a silver currency. Um, and Republicans were facing a problem that there just weren't enough in a rapidly demographically changing America, there just weren't enough Northern Protestants and Black Republicans in the South to create a majority that could win the presidency and control the Congress. And we had 25 years of uh, divided, you know, a bitter government, two years with a Republican president, House and Senate, two years with a Democratic president, House and Senate, 20 years of divided government and five presidential elections in a row in which no one, no one gets a majority of the vote. Everybody is at 50% or at less than 50%. So my point is, is that in that election, 
somebody created a majority that lasted for the next three decades. Uh, and uh, there are lessons in there on how on how and what parties need to do in order to achieve. He also brought uh, prosperity to America. He uh, he won the Spanish-American War. Uh, for some reason, I've never really understood, you're not an imperialist power, even though you won uh, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and Cuba. Um, and he was somebody who, uh, who uh, brought in protective tariffs. I mean, this is a really major sort of... Uh, uh, game-changing politician is is the reason we're not in in England, for example, taught about him because um, because he was only in office for four years. Well, uh, actually, close to five, but uh, but he's overshadowed by a successor, whom he rescued from political oblivion. I actually stumbled into McKinley because I was trying to understand how Theodore Roosevelt resurrected his political career. He'd run for mayor of New York, came in third. Uh, he had gotten on the wrong side of the boss of the Republican Party of New York, uh, the easy boss, Senator, former Senator Thomas Collier Platt. Uh, he was uh, he had backed the wrong guy for president in 1896. He thought he could resurrect his career by supporting the Speaker of the House, the front runner, Thomas Brackett Reed, and ride his coattails into a job in Washington. Uh, he does not think much of McKinley. He writes his sister a letter right after the convention saying uh, McKinley is a good man, but weak. And I worry about him in a moment of crisis for our country. And uh, and yet somehow or another, he gets resurrected from political oblivion by this very, it turns out, astute politician in the form of William McKinley. He wants to modernize his party. And while he tells one of uh, Roosevelt's uh, backers that he thinks he's too pugnacious, he nonetheless resurrects him from obscurity, gives him the post of the Assistant Secretary of Navy, uh, otherwise, we would probably have never heard of him again, except as an interesting character on the edges of American politics. Amazing. Tell us about Williams. Um, sorry, William Jennings Bryan. He seems a fascinating figure, but again, uh, not really understood on this side of the Atlantic. Yeah. No, he is a very interesting figure because uh, he is basically a creature created by will. Uh, as we approach the 1896 election, the Democratic Party is splitting apart. Uh, the incumbent president is a gold man who has, uh, the country has been plunged into a deep uh, depression in 1894. The Republicans take the Congress with huge numbers. Uh, he's basically, uh, Cleveland is basically eviscerated. And, and by, sorry, let me just butt in, sorry, by gold man, you mean somebody who believes in keeping the United States on the gold standard, not going down the bimetallist route. Right. So, and, and what's interesting, we were not officially on the gold standard. Uh, we, we, we were not on the gold standard officially until 1900. There were not, if, if there had been a vote in the 1870s or 80s, or even the 90s until 19, 1896, that, the, the, that would not have been able to pass. In fact, there was an attempt to sort of get the sentiment of the Congress in 1873 and again in 1874, and there was not a majority for the official adoption of the gold standard. But we were on a quasi-gold standard because our our, our, uh, we'd sort of devalued silver, uh, except for minor coinage. And, um, but anyway, the, the Democratic Party is being split badly. And, and the, the populists who rally around the issue of uh, silver are led by uh, a congressman from Missouri, uh, Richard Park Bland. And Bland has been fighting this cause since, early, since the early 1870s. Uh, one of the great things about this era in American politics I find really amusing is everybody has a nickname. Everybody's got a cool nickname. And Richard Park Bland's nickname is Silver Dick, 
which when I read it in the New York Times for the first time, I said it must have meant something different back then. But anyway, <laughs> he, he has led this fight and he is considered the front runner for the Democratic nomination. And um, but he you know, back then you didn't really contest in the way that we contest today. McKinley is the first man who really contests in a different way for the nomination of his party. But Bland sits there waiting in, in Lebanon, Missouri, for the Democrats to meet. Well, what happens is they show up in uh, their convention and uh, and by total accident, by total and complete, in fact, a series of six different or seven different accidents, uh, this obscure two-term congressman from Nebraska, William Jennings Bryan, who has who has not run for re-election in 1894, knowing that he would be defeated in that year. So he's not even in Congress. But because he's been a, a devout follower of the silver movement, he is given a role in the convention. But it's complete by accident. I mean, he happens to be in the right place, or better yet, in the he happens to be in the wrong place at the right time, so that it, various assignments are not given to him. And finally, they say, well, you know, he's been a good soldier, and we, we couldn't make him the, the a temporary chairman of the convention. We couldn't put him chairman of the platform committee. So let's give him a chance to speak on the floor for 15 minutes during a debate on the on the on the plank the New York Democrats are attempting to pass a gold plank they know they're going to be badly beaten but they feel they need to make the fight and so they give this guy uh 15 minutes the night before he has dinner with his wife and his uh and a great friend of his who's his sort of Texas leader who is incidentally the the superintendent of the state school for the insane which I've always thought is sort of a nice touch, but they're having dinner sitting on uh, sitting in downtown Chicago, and uh, people are, are are coming up and down the street chanting uh, Bland's name, and then his principal opponent, who's a former Republican, now turned Democrat governor of Iowa, and they're chanting the names of these two candidates, and with great confidence, um, Brian turns to his wife and his friend and says, uh, "They don't know it yet, but tomorrow they'll be chanting my name." And his friend thinks he's insane, and uh, but he thought he would. In fact, literally, he has been that afternoon. The editor of the Denver Post has run into Brian and said to him, "Who do you think is going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party?" And he says, "Well, I'm going to be." And literally, Patterson, the editor, the publisher, thinks that this guy is insane. This guy's a lunatic. But he gets up and in the middle of this debate, just the last accident happens just before he takes to the stage. And that accident is, is that there is a gold Democrat from Wisconsin who's droning on, or excuse me, a, a silver Democrat who's droning on and on. And a gold Democrat from Massachusetts says, I need to have more time to speak. He's using up our time. So we need to lengthen the debate here. And I need to have 15 minutes more. And so uh, they say, okay, fine. So Brian is now given a 30 minute speech, literally moments before he stands up to speak. And he stands up to speak. The crowd of 20,000 people in the arena is sort of diffident. They've, they've been listening to this long debate. They don't know who this guy is, but he begins and delivers a famous speech called the Cross of Gold speech. And it, it electrifies the audience. The crowd is, first of all, you know, begins to still as they listen to him. Then they begin to, you can just feel the tension in the air. Yet Josephus Daniels, who's the editor of a newspaper in North Carolina, writes, it was sitting in the rafters. And, and when he, be, and he moves into the main part of the speech, and literally people are, are on the edge of their seat. And then he goes into a litany about how, you know, the, the, the man who owns the, 
who owns the the shop at the corner and the in rural is as important as the merchant in the big city and the man who goes into the bowels of the earth to dig out the ore is just as important as the gold as the gold trader on Wall Street and the crowd is going nuts. So he finishes the speech with his famous peroration, you shall not crucify mankind on a cross of gold, literally with his hands extended as if he's Christ himself. He literally has dappled his fingers down his forehead to indicate the blood flowing from the cross, uh, from the uh, from being uh, the crown of thorns, and, and ends with his hands outreached. It's dead silent. He thinks that he has failed. He drops his hands to the side, and 20,000 people go, go mad. How ex an extraordinary moment. And was this in the era before Electrified Voice? I mean, could you... Uh, Absolutely. So he had to do it just speak to 20,000 people with the strength of his lungs. With the strength of his voice. Without any amplification. And and he had a great uh, a voice too. And But he he had practiced this speech. He'd been, a, he'd been out in the countryside uh, giving speeches on behalf of Silver. So some of this stuff appears earlier. The most famous line he'd actually delivered in Congress a couple of years before to absolutely no response at all. But he had been, he, he made his living in part by being a paid speaker. And a couple of days before, he'd been at a paid speech in Crete, Nebraska, in the middle of nowhere, and had used the line and had a positive response. So he sort of made a mental note, maybe I ought to use that if I get a chance to speak at the convention. And how did McKinley beat him? Well, McKinley started off not beating him. They took him for granted and thought, oh, this, this is a passing fancy. But the country was mad for silver and mad for, a, you know, they wanted an answer to, to the restoration of prosperity. How are we going to get there? And one guy was talking about that in terms that they, that they got, Brian, and who did an unusual thing. Rather than staying at home, he went on the campaign trail. He, he eventually traveled 18,000 miles by train until the October He's traveling mostly by himself, uh, getting on a, you know, buying a ticket at the station, wiring ahead so people know he's coming. But uh, McKinley uh, in September is awakened to the fact that he's losing. There's Back then, they didn't have polls. They canvassed. That is to say, they literally would knock on everybody's door and ask who you were for. And the canvasses coming out of the Midwest, the Republican heartland, uh, are terrible. He's a quarter of the Republicans in Iowa are defecting. The party's facing enormous defeat. What happens is two guys show up. I think this is the argument I make in the book. Two guys show up and start to talk about the issue of gold in an entirely different way. McKinley is now starting to speak as delegations come to greet him in his home in Canton, Ohio. And he's talking about gold as you would talk about, you know, we need to uh, have a currency that is attractive to the people who are investing in our company, the Brits on Lombard Street, the, the, the French, the Germans. They, 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 we need to have a gold currency to draw their, their investment in. And he's talking about in terms like what a business person would. But then two people show up. One of them begins, one of them is the former mayor of Scranton, Pennsylvania, who is the head of the largest, former president of the largest labor union in America. And he begins to talk about what a silver currency would do to the value of a work, working man's pay, that, that silver is worth half of what gold is. So if he gets paid $15 in gold, he's got $15 worth of purchasing power. If he gets paid $15 in silver, he's got $7.50. And he puts it in the terms that ordinary people, working men and working women. The other guy is Roosevelt, who starts to make talks around New York in which he shows up with two loaves of bread. This is a full loaf of bread that, that, a, that a gold dollar will allow the working man to buy. Here's half a loaf, which is what he'll get in silver. And suddenly, 
you start to see in the remarks of McKinley in these speeches as people come forward to to uh, to see him in Canton, and more importantly, in all of the materials that start to come out of gigantic flood of material that starts to come out of the McKinley headquarters in Chicago, you start seeing an emphasis on what what sound money means to the working man, the working woman, to the farmer, to the small town merchant, uh, and and to the person who has met their responsibilities and paid their debts. And suddenly the tone of the campaign changes. And ultimately, that's what wins the election for. And, and is that what you mean when you say in your subtitle of your book that it has lessons for the present day, the idea that sound money is essential to uh, a political party? Well, I think I think that is uh, true, but there are a number of lessons. One is you need to have a positive and optimistic vision that, that literally connects you with the, the, the voters. And that was important. You, you, he modernized the Republican Party, which before McKinley was an Anglo-Saxon Protestant party in the North. And suddenly he starts inviting and seeing people come to Canton. It's like the, you know, the, uh, the, the Greek uh, sponge fishermen of, of Providence, Rhode Island show up and the Croatian miners from Pennsylvania show up. And he, he literally, uh, he is, he, there's the largest group in America, uh, organized group in America is the American Protective Association, which is anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant. And he had taken them on as governor. They announced in the spring of 1896 that he is the only Republican candidate for president who is unacceptable to them. And he takes them on face on and beats them. He first beats them in the, in the, in the press, and then he beats them at the convention in order, in, in fact, in order to sort of show that, that the Republican Party is different. He has a rabbi give the first benediction and a Catholic priest give, the, uh, give a, uh, a prayer at another, another one and another session of the, of the convention. So he, is, he modernizes the Republican Party and says to the immigrants who are flooding into America at this point, that the party of prosperity and upward movement for you is the Republican Party. He is the first candidate, Republican or Democrat, to openly meet with black voters and ask for their support. He, in the, in the, in, in, as he runs for the nomination, he, he's the first person to ever do that, meets with them in 1895. And it's sort of shocking. Here's the guy who thinks he's going to run for president. And he speaks to black voters in first Florida and then in Georgia. So he's got a lot of he runs the first modern political campaign. Uh, and, and, and his campaign is not run as we historically think by Mark Hanna, who is his good friend from Cleveland and a, and a, a wealthy uh, shipping magnate. The campaign is actually run by a 32 year old punk the, a kid for a kid from uh, Cincinnati who went to law school and then went out to the West to make his living and uh, lived in Lincoln, Nebraska. And uh, he officed in the same small office building as another young lawyer, four years older than him, William Jennings Bryan. And the two men often had lunch together uh, at a local uh, diner with the head of the ROTC program at the University of Nebraska, John J. Pershing, Black Jack Pershing. Wow. And, uh, and, uh, wow. Everybody shows up in, in, in this story, but that's, that, that, there are lots of lessons to be drawn, but it, the, the campaign in retrospect was the first modern presidential campaign and the coalition that he created in that election dominates American politics until 1932. And uh, you, yes, you mentioned 1932 earlier. Surely there must be another in the, in the 90 years or so that we've had since uh, 1932. There, the, surely the moment at which uh, Southern 
um, Southerners start voting Republican in, in Ronald Reagan's time. Isn't that just as big a sea change moment as any of the five you mentioned at the beginning of this? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, and, and political scientists will argue over it, but I'm, I'm a, a very much of the school that between 1972 and 1980, there's a realignment of American politics that takes place. It's only it's impeded by the by the nomination of a Southern Democrat and Jimmy Carter, but it's happening, and it's and and is and it lasted for uh, thirty years as well. You know, the only way the Democrats could break it is is similar to how the Democrats broke the McKinley coalition on a presidential level when Roosevelt himself runs for election in nineteen twelve as an independent, and the Democrats win in a three way race. Same thing happens in nineteen ninety two. Um, famously, you had a reading competition with uh, George George W. Bush, uh, W. Bush, forty three. Um, tell us about that, because uh, that was history and biography, wasn't it? That you uh, well, most, you... Mo mostly. What what happened is, uh, at two, Christmas time of two thousand four, I was in Washington, and the president was at his ranch in Crawford. And um, we would typically uh, talk on a, when he was out of Washington, we typically talk on Sunday evening or, you know, if he, before he came back just to sort of catch up. So he called me and uh, he was not going to come back the next day. He was coming back a few days later, but he called uh, that weekend and uh, we, we had our conversation on, on things of, of import to the office. And, the, and but then he said, uh, I could hear Mrs. Bush, Laura in the background. And he said, okay, okay. He said, Laura wants to know, do you have any good New Year's resolutions? And I said, well, you know, the campaign sort of took all my time and I've gotten out. I'm a, I'm, I'm a big reader. I've always been a big reader, but I'd sort of been occupied for 2004 and 2003. And I said, I want to get back in the habit of reading. And so my goal is to read a, a book a week in 2020 2005, 52 books in 2005. And he sort of like, oh, yeah, right. Nerd Nick, you know, <laughs> So a couple of days later, he arrived back in Washington and uh, we're in a meeting in the Oval Office and he looks at me, looks over his glasses and said, I'm on my second book. Where are you? <laughs> and what had happened is he was reading uh, Doris Kuhn Goodwin's uh, Team of Rivals and had finished it like on the first or second of January. And so he was on to his second book. So I, I, I took that as a challenge. <laughs> and and, and uh, so off we went to the races. Very quickly, it deteriorated to childish levels. And his assistant, <laughs> his assistant who was in charge of, 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 of keeping the list of completed books, basically said, stop tell, talking to me and asking where the competition stands. I will put out a card every week showing what each of you have read. Only tell me what you when you finished a book and stop bothering me. And so literally every week she would put out a card showing the relative level of the two of us. We, we quickly agreed that we had to have, you know, it was like arms limitation agreements. We both of us are fans. Of, I don't read much fiction. He doesn't read much fiction, but we like the novels by a guy named McDonald who writes these novels about 1950s and 1960s Florida and the, and the hero of it is a seedy private detective. So we agreed they were like cotton candy. So we could only read them if, so if, if we agreed that the other would read one too, we couldn't just sort of, he wrote like 35 of these books. So anyway, <laughs> we agreed on that. So the competition is going on and the president is like really, you know, like uh, happy with himself because he is slightly ahead of me. Uh, and uh, he, he, you know, uh, so what I did is I 
uh, I pulled ahead of him at, at one moment and, uh, uh, you know, we, we, books are different sizes. So <laughs> what I did is I calculated, uh, you know, how many pages and how many, what was the size of the book? So we could have total linear feet read. And so I figured out where we were in this basic competition and we were sitting in the oval and waiting for some people to show up for a meeting. And he was rumbling on about how uh, he was now, I guess he was briefly, he was briefly ahead of me, I guess, at this point. And I said, well, you know, you, you probably be further ahead or maybe he was behind. And I said, you'd be ahead if we took it. You're reading big books. And, I, you know, if we took into account the size of the book and the number of pages, you know, you probably are way ahead of me. He says, well, that's a good idea. We ought to, we ought to look into that. I said, I have, and I'm ahead <laughs> and pulled up the card. So, so we literally measure by total linear But anyway, we also agree. Equally, Carl. Sorry, it's it's worth pointing out that he was the leader of the free world, and you were a uh, that was a his excuse. Stuff. Well, it's not a bad one. It's not a bad. Look, you're inside. You were Mark Roberts. You're taking a side here on behalf of the president of the United States. But yeah, that was his argument. But anyway, we we it was good nature. We also agreed that we would uh, make it. Make, we would each read. Um, Shakespeare plays. So we would read every couple of months, we'd pick out a Shakespeare play and read it. But uh, at the end of the year, I was ahead and uh, I got the trophy, which looks suspiciously like a bowling trophy. And we did it for 2000, that was 2005. And I was the winner as well in 2006 and 2007. So and at that point, we retired that we retired. <laughs> I still have. It's obviously a very good thing to know that. Uh, um, the leader of the free world is reading a lot and reading history. Um, when and when and and where would you say a sense of history in the past informed his decision making and the and the administration's decision making? Well, he was a history major at Yale. I mean, he was, as long as I have known him, he has been reading biography and history, and and wide ranging. And uh, and at the White House, we had. Uh, great historians come in uh, to give uh, talks to um, uh, to the White House staff and to visit with him. Uh, David McCullough came several times. Uh, Stephen Ambrose, the now departed World War II historian came. Uh, Ron, Ron White, who wrote some terrific books on Abraham Lincoln came. So we had a steady parade because the president, basically his attitude was, you know, history doesn't repeat itself but history and history will inform our thinking. And so uh, there were a constant stream of, of both presidential historians and American historians uh, and world historians who came in. John Lewis Gaddis, the great uh, historian of the, of the Cold War, who actually was one of Bush's instructors at Yale, uh, came to the White House uh, as well. So, uh, you know, your former Churchill colleague, now departed, sir, Martin came to the White House and gave talks as well. How do you think uh, George W. Bush's presidency is going to be seen by historians in the future? Well, uh, my view is people will look back at him and say, here was a reform-minded person who, who changed his country, changed his party. Um, and, uh, but the big, the, you know, he was an education reformer. He proposed a comprehensive immigration reform that will ultimately be adopted. Uh, he, he was bold enough to talk about how we could save Social Security and Medicare and provided an enormous reform to Medicare that is a model for how we ought to proceed with entitlements by empowering uh, the patient in the case of Medicare and the senior in the case of Medicare. Um, 
but it will be dominated obviously by the war on terror. It was not something he sought. It came on a very clear September morning, but he was a war leader who kept America safe for seven years and put in place the institutions and the modernization of our military that will that served the country well, not only in his time, but the president since then. And, uh, you know, he, you know, the, the people would come in and, you know, make Doug discuss, you know, how are you going to be reviewed? How are you, you know, history is going to look, history is going to look at you this or what about that? But he has a serenity about it that history will ultimately get it right and he'll be dead, as he would facetiously say. And I think that's a healthy attitude for, for a leader to have. Uh, it so is. And um, and it's fairly rare for leaders to have that kind of attitude. A lot of them, especially towards the end of their time in office, start to become sort of rather obsessed with the way that history is going to treat them. And and that can be a weakness, can't it? It can. It diver diverts attention. And uh, it's, it's an expression of ego. And if there's one thing that the Bushes tend not to have, both the, the 41 and 43 and all the members of the family, it is a sense of humility. And and he's right. I mean, history history will be written by people uh, who, some of whom were around for these events and others who will study the record. And it's only when passion's cool and people can stand back that, that, the, that the ultimate judgment of history is made. And the passions really were red hot, weren't they? Uh, what you went through and your family, uh, what uh, obviously uh, President Bush went through, the sheer personal viciousness of it all. Um, in retrospect, do you feel uh, bitter about being deliberately misunderstood, or do you just see that as part and parcel of the political process? That, that's part and parcel. I mean, you know, you you just you can't you can't be diverted. I mean, uh, you have to stay focused, and particularly in the in the dangerous times in which we were, you you couldn't you couldn't spend a lot of time and energy on 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 these side issues. Self preservation is is uh, achieved by doing the job that you're sent there to do, not by, you know, trying to manipulate, you know, the, the coverage or set the record straight in the midst of uh, the activities that went forward. And you were there at the sort of beginning of, of social media, weren't you? I mean, now it's, uh, it's even more um, uh, aggressive, it strikes me sometimes. And uh, I mean, what effect do you think that has that had social media in particular, on U.S. politics since your days in the White House? I think it has uh, made politics more coarse, more nasty, more brutal, more vicious, and has empowered uh, uh, extremists, both ideological extremists and people who just believe in extreme language and extreme action. Uh, and it's distorted our politics. And the people who are occupy the Twitterverse are not the American people. And the opinions expressed on the Twitterverse, in the Twitterverse, are oftentimes diametrically opposed to the opinions held by the vast majority of the American people. People say and do things in, uh, on the internet that they would never consider doing if they were in, in, in the same room with another human being. And um, to the degree that we pay attention to it, uh, it's distorting. And the ability for bad actors, both domestic and international, to manipulate the system to, you know, to, to their advantage, to use it as a conduit to, to spread poison and, uh, and, to, and to, just to uh, enable, you know, domestic bad actors to go after each other is enormous. And we got to be careful about that. And it does have real life consequences, doesn't it? As we saw on the 6th of January, for example. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. And, uh, 
you know, it's it, it, there's so much about the internet and about social media that is so useful. I mean, it's allowed us to, you know, share pictures of our family and experiences with our family and friends with a click of a button. It's allowed us to get news instantaneously uh, on, on, on our mobile. It's it's made it easier to organize campaigns. It's made it easier to raise money for charitable causes that are worthy. It's made it, it's tied us together as a people. It's brought the vivid, you know, uh, experiences of, of what other people are undergoing. But, and those are all, many of those are admirable and good things, but it has also brought out an ugliness uh, in our in our public uh, square that's going to be different, difficult to, to uh, wash out. There are two questions that I ask all of my um, guests. The first one is, what are you reading now? Uh, I make the mistake of juggling books. So I'm reading two books right now. I'm almost uh, I'm in the last two chapters of Roger Lowenstein's Ways and Means, which is about how important uh, the finances of the, of, the, of the North and the South were in their respective war efforts. And it's particularly focused on how did Lincoln and his cabinet particularly Chase, the Treasury Secretary, financed the war. And it really is eye-opening as to how the fortunes of, the, of, of, of these two great powers, North and South, were dependent upon, ultimately, upon their ability to finance the war, and uh, really terrifically done. And then I'm, I'm in the middle of uh, Anthony Beaver's uh, Russia Revolution and Civil War, 1917 to 1921, which is, I mean, jaw-dropping. I mean, the, the scope of the violence on both sides, on all sides, there are multiple sides in this affair, and the extraordinary uh, actions of human beings in this period uh, is, uh, I'm just, I, I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. It's one of uh, Anthony's best books, and he's written an awful lot of very, uh, very good ones. Uh, the second question I ask uh, my guests is, um, have you got any favorite counterfactual? Is there a what-if moment of history that, uh, that fascinates you, that your yeah. sort of mind goes back to? Well, look, there are lots of them, but but one of them I've been thinking about uh, with regard, you know, I've thought about it before, but uh, uh, Anthony's book is, is sort of raised, which is what would have happened in April of 1917 if the Germans had said, no, we're not going to allow Vladimir Lenin to pass through Germany in order to catch the boat to Sweden and then the train to the Finland station in Petersburg. And, you know, the revolution had already started. So, you know, you can't, you can't say, oh, well, the Russian revolution would never have happened and communism would, I mean, maybe Trotsky would have uh, led the effort. Uh, and, but the, you know, the provisional, maybe Alexander Kerensky, the head of the provisional government would have been able to make a transition to a, you know, sort of to a Republican form, democratic, more democratic form of government. Maybe the Maybe the czar would have been who had abdicated would have been reinstituted, but it's, it is one of those moments where, you know, you realize that this really the the the, the Russian Revolution in the form that we saw it and the brutality of the period of the 1917 through, you know, the the the, the end of World War II that that this came about because of one man Vladimir Lenin, and being in the right place at the right time or maybe the wrong place at the wrong time a better way of looking at it. And uh, and then being succeeded by his ally Stalin and and two bloodthirsty dictators who ruled over Russia, you know, there would have been a different outcome. I, it's just interesting to think about all the different ways it could have gone. 
it's amazing that you should have chosen that moment because but uh, condi chose it um oh my, on my podcast the other day and no and no, also no. back sometime i can't remember when in uh in the 1990s i actually wrote a what if essay on that which i published in a book called what might have been uh so uh, i'm gonna have to send you a oh copy of God. that <laughs> um, i've got one for you Connie's an expert on that so well i uh, know absolutely yes yes clearly i've got one for you uh, although i can't pronounce his surname i'm saying Joglots, um, the person who shot McKinley in September 1901 and assassinated him. Um, Leon, how do you pronounce it? I, I, I've heard several different ones, but I, I'd say Glockless. Glockless. Uh, what if it, what if, yeah. if the gun had jammed or he'd missed or or whatever? What uh, I mean, you know, in a sense, you mentioned this earlier. You think that there's a chance that we'd have never have really heard of of Teddy Roosevelt? Well, we heard of Roosevelt because. Uh, McKinley made him assistant secretary of the Navy. So he's in a position where the secretary of Navy is out of town. So he sends the famous telegram to uh, Dewey, the head, the head of the Pacific squadron saying, uh, load, load coal, make steam for Manila. If, uh, if a war is declared with Spain and the, and the Spanish fleet attempts to flee, destroy them. Uh, he then resigns from the sub cabinet uh, in order to organize the first volunteers, the Rough Riders and uh, rides up Kettle Hill and San Juan Hill and uh, becomes a war hero and returns to New York in September of, of, uh, of, 19, uh, of 1898. Uh, and, and with a 30-day long campaign, he's nominated for governor and in a 30-day long campaign, wins the critical battleground state of New York and becomes its governor. So McKinley had already made him. So when he became vice president, he probably would have succeeded McKinley uh, in uh, 1904, when McKinley would have finished his second term. Yeah, so we do we st do still hear hear of uh, a Theodore uh, from Teddy Roosevelt. We still from so we still hear from him, but we would have had it. And frankly, the McKinley Roosevelt is largely a, a continuation of McKinley, only on steroids and at fast pace. Because <laughs> McKinley, McKinley is a reformer. And not only you mentioned protectionism, he was the we'd we'd been at we'd had uh, protective tariffs since the 1820s. But what was interesting is McKinley had decided that America's economy was strong enough that we could compete on the world stage. So he first of all is the first American president to appoint a trade envoy. He appoints a Kansas congressman to become the U.S. representative to try and work out trade agreements, particularly in the hemisphere, based on the principle of reciprocity. In fact, the last speech he gives that he delivers at the in Buffalo at the at the uh, exposition there is a speech devoted to saying America's economy is strong enough that we ought to begin to say to other trading partners, we'll trade you the same way you treat us which was a recognition of the maturity of the American economy. He was also though, he was not a progressive in the sense that you know Woodrow Wilson and uh, Theodore Roosevelt were, but he was a reformer. That is to say, he recognized that the modern society in which that was emerging in America required things like, you know, uh, we gotta do something to guarantee that food and drugs are you know, pure. We gotta, we gotta do something to ameliorate the enormous challenges facing the, the urban working class. So he had begun uh, efforts, uh, modest in nature, to, to make uh, society uh, you know, more equal and the economy more welcoming for, for everyone. But uh, yeah, he, he, would, he, would, he would be remembered as a president, unlike 
you know, going down as he is, as, you know, assass assassinated president who really, all we know is that he was somewhere between all those people in the Gilded Age that we don't remember their names and Theodore Roosevelt, the bright star who followed. Are you writing a book at the moment? I am. Um, and uh, painfully, uh, I'm writing, I, I've decided I'm, I'm writing on what, uh, what happens if a president knows he doesn't know something and he has to make a decision? And how does he, how does not knowing that he doesn't know something cause him to try and find out what it, what it is that he doesn't know and how does he operate? And I've settled on three examples, the Louisiana Purchase, who really is in charge of the two acres or three acres at the base of the Mississippi River that Thomas Jefferson wants? He does. He's not after Louisiana. He, he says to his son-in-law, it's going to take us a century to fill up the space between the Atlantic and the Mississippi, They're the boundary at that point. But he is desperately concerned about the trade of the West because everything that is grown and made and manufactured and dug out of the ground uh, west of the Alleghenies, only one thing is valuable enough to be brought back over the mountains bourbon and everything else has to be put on a flatboat and floated down the Mississippi River. Spain has twice tried to steal the Western United States. And, uh, you know, so he's, he wants to get New Orleans, but who's got control? Because in August of 1800, while he's running for president, there's a report in the semi-official French newspaper that Spain is, uh, is going to give Louisiana back to France. And he is soured on, he, Jefferson, is soured on on uh, Napoleon, but this report in the paper is denied a couple of days later by the French government, but he's worried who's in charge. And so how does he go about finding out what he can find out about it, which is interesting. He does something that his two predecessors had not done. He invites the ambassadors of the three countries in question, England, France, and Spain to come and have dinner with him. So he can you know, ply them with wine and food and see if they'll tell him what's going on. Um, the second one is the nullification crisis of 1828. Are there enough unionists in South Carolina that if if Andrew Jackson takes a tough line on the nullification of the tariff laws that that South Carolina will will rally to him and stay in the union? And then the final one is a decision that nobody remembers, but Ulysses S. Grant considered his veto of the inflation bill of 1874 to be one of the most important things he did, and it made America a global economic power, and nobody remembers it today. Fascinating. Gosh, that's going to be a that's going to be a hell of a book to write. Wonderful. Have you come across? Have you have you come up with some some glorious title for it? Oh no no. My, my, <laughs> first of all, my, my publisher won't let me ever propose a title. Uh, <laughs> I know I, I know exactly how you feel. Actually, yeah Carl. yeah. They're ex they're experts at that. In fact, they've said that my editor said finish a couple of these three episodes, and then we'll sit down and decide on three more. But uh, I think I'm going to go for six episodes. Carl Rove. Thank you very much indeed for coming on Secrets of Statecraft. Thank you, my lord. <laughs> we'll keep that in the recording. <laughs> <laughs> on the next episode of Secrets of Statecraft, I'll be speaking to Michael Gove, who's that rare thing in politics, a genuine intellectual, but also an extremely effective minister. He served in various cabinets, on David Cameron, and also Theresa May and Boris Johnson. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work 
or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org. Thank you.